This is a Radio 191 FM podcast. You're listening to R1 News here on 91 FM. I'm Gemma and I'm joined by Scott today as well. Coming up on the show today, we have Chloe Swarbrick live to discuss the people's inquiry into student well-being. I've also talked to a queer student representative living in Philadelphia, Abigail Young, about the new anti-trans bills that have been signed in by the Alabama governor, Kay Ivey. We're also interviewing Finn Campbell from Gen Zero Dunedin about the George Street upgrade that is set to start just after Easter. The Radio 191 FM News Headlines. Kia ora koutou, ko is now at COVID alert level orange. The rapid shift was announced yesterday and occurred at midnight. At Orange, gathering limits are removed. There is no maximum number of people allowed in one place, indoors or outdoors. Mask requirements are also somewhat relaxed, although they will still be in place in some indoor settings. The shift to Orange has been welcomed by many hospitality venues, who have been calling for the rules to be relaxed for some time. However, some health experts are critical, with Dr Susie Wiles saying the removal of mask requirements in schools is disappointing. More information on Orange setting guidelines can be found on the Ministry of Health website. The grassed area of the Upper Octagon is set to be replaced after it was damaged following the recently ended anti-mandate occupation of the area. The occupation, which began in February in support of the larger protests in Wellington in opposition to COVID-19 mandates, ended on Monday after protesters were informed that they would be issued with a trespass notice if they did not vacate the Octagon by midday Monday. The area was vacated on Monday morning, but the grass of the upper octagon was severely damaged. A DCC spokesperson said new turf would be laid and grass seed sown to repair damage and ensure a consistent look. And that was the bulletin on the R1 News. Now, the weather. The Radio 191 FM weather. Today's weather is sunny with some light winds at points throughout the day. A high of 19 degrees and a low of 10 brings us into the long weekend with more sun forecasted to come. The Gardening Guide recommends planting and nourishing your garlic, beans, beetroot and leafy greens like kale with cooler climates and morning frosts heading our way as we continue to transition into autumn.
As of Tuesday, a people's inquiry into student well-being has been placed by the Green Party in collaboration with 33 student unions across Aotearoa. The inquiry hopes to shine a light on the student experience as no other inquiry to this extent has ever been placed before, focusing on housing, employment, study spaces, and the general costs of life as a student. The hope is that students can be given a voice to express their unique situations. The hope is that the survey can be used for student advocacy and we will be able to see some positive changes to the standards of living that students in Aotearoa face. Today we are joined by Chloe Swarbrick who is front-running this initiative on behalf of the Green Party. Hi Chloe, how are you? Morning, uh, I'm doing alright, how are you? Good, yeah. So why is now the time to have student voices being heard? Well, I reckon always there's a time for student voices to be heard, if I'm frank. Um, just, I guess, as some background to how we got to this point. So I've been uh, the Green Party spokesperson on tertiary education now for ooh, nearly five years, which makes me feel relatively old, given that I'm often kind of presented as the young gun in Parliament. And actually, that's kind of an indictment on Parliament, that the youngest person still here happens to be 27 years old. Uh, but all of that aside, uh, over these past few years, kind of year on year, working with different student associations and their presidents across the country, we've managed to make um, some inroads and in changes, such as the Code of Pastoral Care, which came into effect at the start of this year, which came out of the Student Accommodation Inquiry, which uh, I worked across student unions uh, and then the Minister of Education's office, as well as the Honourable Nikki Kay when she was on the Education and Workforce Select Committee. So we have managed to make some inroads, but the fact of the matter is that there's been a huge number of things that have occurred over the past three decades, which has consistently sought to undermine student voice representation and actually the lack of evidence and data that we have about just how dire things are getting. And I think a big reason that we haven't seen the same kind of student pushback that we may have seen in, I don't know, the 60s or 70s or 80s back in the so-called good old days when, might I add, university was free, uh, is that, you You know, in uh, the early 2010s, there was the implementation of something called voluntary student membership, which is a very calculated legislative change by the Act and National parties, supported as well by United Future, to effectively strip away resource and the guaranteed representation of students when they get into study of their student associations uh, and therefore also strips that resource uh, and guaranteed kind of money and funding going to those associations, which in turn has led to a lack of institutional kind of knowledge being passed over and everybody just kind of fighting fires as they crop up as opposed to being able to take on the whole system. And how has the Ministry of Education responded to this people's inquiry? I've been trying to get the Ministry uh, and the Minister to do something to this effect uh, for a while now. We've been trying to get, uh, you know, through the likes of select committees, a far greater review of the impact of the likes of the cost of living issues and the rental crises on students in particular. You know, the Greens obviously have within our policy a guaranteed minimum income, which would of course extend to students, effectively realising the kind of vision of uh, NZUSA for there to be a guaranteed or universal student income or student allowance. We know that the way that things currently operate is that only about 16% of the entire student populace in this country get access to the means-tested student allowance, and that on average uh, that figure is far less than the cost of rent uh, on a week-by-week basis. 
But on top of that, this kind of means testing support, which also, of course, doesn't extend to postgraduate students. That, by the way, is something that was promised by Labor in the last term of government, but was one of the first things on the chopping block when we came to the 2020 COVID budget, at a point in time when you know the government was recognising that we were going to have to support New Zealanders through this upcoming pandemic. Yet once again, students were the ones being sacrificed for money going back into the coffers for everybody else. Uh, that uh, this kind of student support has simply not kept pace with the cost of living. So those who, you know, are able to have their parents in a situation where they have access to accountants or lawyers or otherwise can move their affairs and finances into uh, certain arrangements that mean that kids of some wealthier parents still may end up getting access to the student allowance, which of course is not the intention of it. And then on the flip side, those who are assumed to have access to and support of their parents, which is frankly, quite a patronising assumption to begin with, are not able to get access to that support when they, in fact, do need it. So it's failing everybody um, on all sides. And, you know, just to give you a real indication of that, in 1999, the average amount of student allowance received per eligible student was $4,420. In 2021, it was $6,641 per year. But adjusting that for inflation, it would bring the 1999 value to approximately $8,265, which means that the minority of students who received the student allowance in 2021 were in fact $1,600 worse off than their counterparts 20 years ago. And this is the point that we're really trying to drive home, is for far too many students, their insight into student life is, you know, three to five years at a time. And you can accept that things are really shitty and you're having a really hard time, but you aren't quite prone to, you know, contextualise that and the reality that things have been degrading for 30 years now and it hasn't always been this way and, frankly, it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Um, Andrew Lessels, the president of NZUSA who I spoke to yesterday, has said the government is completely disconnected from the lives of our 4,000 students across Aotearoa. Uh, Chris Hipkins has alternatively said that the government is already focused on student well-being. What do you think of this? Ooh, uh, so, yeah, just just on that figure, there's, there's nearly 400,000 students across the country, which is a pretty substantial portion of the population. And, of course, that includes students from a range of different backgrounds, from those who study part-time through full-time, uh, from those who come from backgrounds of having had their parents go through university and those who obviously haven't. It also includes our apprentices, too. Um, I, I do think that it's a little disappointing, the, the minister's response to this, especially given that, you know, uh, in question time, on Tuesday, I asked the minister a number of questions about, you know, what the average amount of support that students receive, the average amount of hours that full-time students work on top of their 40-hour-plus study, how many students were denied support from the institution's hardship fund, how much it would cost to reinstate postgraduate student allowance. And he didn't have answers specifically to next to any of those things, which once again highlights the need to collect this high-quality data and this evidence, this irrefutable evidence that things have to change. Because otherwise, I consistently, in this um, place of Parliament, am trying to make the case that, you know, I'm hearing all of this anecdotal feedback and people in crises are coming forward and saying to me that they need help. But then I'm told by the minister or the ministry that 
don't worry, we don't know that there's any problem here because we don't have the data that there's any problem here. So this is very much a kind of people's move uh, and, you know, really want to acknowledge the partnership here with NZUSA and the other 33 student unions who have come on board to say enough is enough, we draw the line. And if the ministry is not going to count us, if the minister is not going to count us, if parliament is not going to count us, then we're going to count ourselves and we're going to prevent, uh, present the irrefutable evidence that things have to change. And in the process, actually build up the solidarity to You've always been a strong advocate for students, especially since you've been a member of the Green Party. Do you think that Parliament would give this the same amount of attention that it's getting if you and the Green Party weren't involved? Uh, I mean, it's quite funny. The, the minister actually in questions uh, on Tuesday reflected on this himself. Um, people may not know that uh, inside of our cabinet, actually, you have the Minister of Finance and the Minister of Education, who both themselves were student association presidents. So two years in a row, actually. Each of them spent two years in a row, and one of them for NZUSA, the other actually for OUSA, uh, and the other for VUSA. So, you know... I, I'm really gutted that there hasn't been that consistency in bringing those principles and those things that were campaigned on into um, this policy-making space and into decisions around things like budget. Once again, that trade-offs are being made where students are being sacrificed and others are being put before them. The reality is, in Parliament, we often see allegations of ideology and people you know, only pursuing things dogmatically because they're bloody-minded to support XYZ-given constituents. The reality is that all politics is ideological. That's kind of the point. It's all about values. It's all about who you're going to stand for and what the trade-offs are that you are willing to make at the end of the day, the priorities that you will put forward, that you will campaign for, and that you will execute. So the Greens have always been really straight up and explicit about that. Uh, yeah, I, I do have to say that given my experience in these last five years, trying to you know work across the different student associations and unions and trying to get these issues up in Parliament that it's definitely not been received as a priority for any of the other political parties, and that's hugely, hugely disappointing. Yeah. Ultimately, are there any goals that you are hoping to get out of this inquiry and the student wellbeing survey? I want students to know that they matter. Um, so frequently I talk to students who feel totally downtrodden and spoken down to and patronised and expected as though they have to live through this extreme kind of what, you know, is often colloquially called, uh, you know, just experiencing being broke, but it's not. There's a point at which you have to realise that being ostensibly broke for three to five years is, oh, that's poverty, <laughs> That is not a sustainable situation. And we know, you know, even looking at the mental health and addiction inquiry, Hiaro Oranga, that those environmental factors like people's access to kind of security and um, planning for their future, their ability to know that they're going to be able to put food on the table and not have to trade that off against things like rent or power payments, that they therefore have, um, you know, far greater levels of physical and therefore mental health. All of these things contribute to somebody's well-being and therefore their preparedness and ability to do something like study. And that's not even taking into account the amount of work that students are currently taking on on top of their study, which is, you know, for full-time students, supposed to be 40 hours uh, in order to, you know, trade off that kind of sense of well-being to get through their grades, but also to be able to afford to live. 
So the things that we're hoping for here is obviously, firstly, that irrefutable evidence that things have to change and no longer operating in a space where I can be told by the minister or by parliament or by the ministry that, don't worry, it's not a problem because they're simply not collecting the data on this issue. But secondly, that students know that they are not alone and that these are shared issues and that therefore something is wrong and that they have power in working with others to change exactly that. I want students to know that they are not in individuals suffering alone, this is a systemic problem and that we're backing them to change it. Well, kia ora, Chloe, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's been great to have you on to discuss this. Kia ora, thanks for having me. Um, just if anyone does want to um, engage with that, um, I, I believe this is going to be so embarrassing if I get our um, URL wrong, but I think it's greens.org.nz. Um, you'll find the survey at the um, top of the page. Awesome. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. That was Chloe Swarbrick talking with us about the Student Wellbeing Survey and the inquiry that the Green Party has taken on in collaboration with 33 student unions across Aotearoa. Coming up now, I've talked to a queer student representative living in Philadelphia, Abigail Young, about the Alabama anti-trans bills that have recently been passed by Governor uh, Key Ivey. Kia ora koutou, ko Last Friday, Kay Ivey, the governor of Alabama, signed two bills into law. One bill criminalizes health care providers that offer gender-affirming care to people under 19. The other requires that students use bathrooms that match their assigned sex on their birth certificates. This is part of a wave of anti-trans bills being signed into law in the southern states of the United States. Earlier this year in Texas, Governor Greg Abbott asked civilians to report parents or caregivers of a trans kid who was receiving gender-affirming care. Texas's Attorney General Ken Paxton called gender-affirming care physical and sexual abuse. I spoke with Abigail Young, a queer student representative living in Philadelphia about these new bills that have been passed. With the bill being relevant to trans children and people under 19, Abigail pointed out that the only gender-affirming health care that is being targeted is hormone treatments. Hormone therapy is not permanent and reversible to a certain extent, depending on how long you have been on hormone therapy. I take issue with it for like a couple of reasons, especially the hormones part, which is like one, it's not permanent. Like gender-affirming surgeries are very rarely given to people under 18 anyway. So what we're really talking about is hormones, which like if you stop taking hormones, you stop taking hormones, right? Like your your body reverts. Like, of course, there are going to be some permanent changes if you start hormones as someone who's still going through puberty, but like you, you will visibly revert. By preventing people under 19 from receiving gender affirming treatments, many trans kids are left feeling disregarded and dysphoric for longer in life. It's like forcing people to go through puberty um, that's like associated with a gender that's not comfortable with. It's definitely going to like create dysphoria. This has proven to lead to high rates of depression amongst trans youth. With a 2016 study with the National Transgender Discrimination Survey in the United States revealing that 41% of trans people who took the survey had attempted suicide. As stated on GLAD's website, the bill will require school personnel, including teachers, counselors, and principals, to out trans youth to their parents or legal guardians. Having to be outed to your parents if you like share with your therapist or a doctor or your teacher or your counselor, like that is really horrifying. 
One of the new bills targets healthcare workers and faces them with a 10-year sentence for providing gender-affirming treatment to trans youth in Alabama. So they're implying that like being trans is dangerous. They're basically like recriminalizing queerness. This, along with Texas's governor's statement, puts trans kids at risk of being outed and in a state that is telling them they are not welcome, they now face danger. So they're saying not only are our children not going to do this, your children can't do it either, which I find to be like a huge invasion of privacy. These new bills and statements coming from the southern states of the U.S. are linked to the opposition these states have to abortion. These states claim to have strong religious opposition to anyone but straight cis men and straight cis women being together. Thanks to the media shining a light on this, such as the two men who have been questioning BYU students about their beliefs on TikTok, it has become apparent that these states want control over people and their procreational abilities. The reason people care, in my experience, about affirming surgeries for trans youth is because it prevents procreation. Another bill has been dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill. This bill prevents students in kindergarten to year six from talking about relationships, sexuality, and gender identity in the classroom. This bill was meant to prevent teachers from presenting queerness and queer relationships in any way in their classrooms, but there have been some creative methods of fighting back. I think is being like kind of refuted in a really clever way, which is they are not allowing children with like straight parents to discuss that their parents are straight. And they are not allowing the discussion of marriage or dating of straight students. So that's a way that like gay teachers in Alabama are kind of fighting back. It is important to note, though, as Abigail said to me after, that it is often not safe for queer people to do this in Alabama, especially if it is known that they aren't straight or cisgendered. Overall, these new bills focus on people's opinions, but they are using them to make decisions on a wider scale and ultimately are making queer people living in the United States scared for their lives. They are scared about their future and how these bills may spread throughout the country and potentially get tighter. The body policing that is currently coming from the right wing of the United States is really terrifying.
was Phoebe Rings with Lazy Universe, and just before we had Abigail Young, a queer student representative, talking about the Alabama anti-trans bills that have recently been passed. Now passing over to Scott. The Dunedin City Council yesterday unveiled their designs for a $28 million upgrade to take place on George Street starting after Easter, and is projected to conclude by 2024. This is the result of years of politicking on the council, with much controversy being raised about the street converting into a one-way. The upgrade will see three individual blocks given their own unique themes that reflect Autoporti's status as a UNESCO city of literature and emphasise Manafenua. To get a green design perspective, we are speaking with Finn Campbell from Gen Zero Dunedin. Welcome to the show, Finn. Hello, hello, how are you? I'm I'm well, how are you? So some people have been waiting a long time to see what this plan will look like. It's finally out there, and what do you think of the design elements alone? Is this a street where people will want to be on? I'm just, uh, you're cutting out a little bit, could you just repeat the question? Some people have been waiting a long time to see what this plan will look like, and now that it's finally out there, what do you think of the design elements alone? Is there is this a street where people want to be on? Yeah, I think, yeah, the design elements that they've used, really quite really quite interesting from uh, an aesthetic perspective. I think the, the use of kaitahu design, the themes and the motifs, I think, you know, they've really shown that they've put a lot of effort into the partnership and making this, a, you know, a, a really collaborative design approach. Um, but as far as um, the other design features, the increase of public space, um, the, the less allocation of car space and car parks, I think it, it, this place is generally going to be a, a, a much-needed improvement on what, what the previous design really was like. So obviously, in announcing the plans, the councillors spoke of greening the city as an intention of the project, and you mentioned that there will be less um, car parks, but there will, sti- there will still be car parks on the street. How is that going to affect uh, everything that's going on? Um, I think uh, it's going to be interesting to see what, what the number of car parks really bring. I think they're, they're going to probably be returning to free car parking, um, which I think a lot of people just are going to continue to complain about the lack of car parking on George Street. And I think that's not a, a really a supply issue as far as the car parks go. There, there are like 3,000 car parks on George Street uh, in the George Street area, and I think the, the parks on George Street itself represent less than 1% of all car parks in, in that area. Um, so I think people, people are probably going to continue to complain about car parking, but that, I think the council's done a pretty good job of trying to figure these things out, but I think no matter what council does in the car parking space, people are already just already going to keep on complaining about it. How do you rate George Street as it is now for its accessibility to eco-friendly transportation methods, and how will these upgrades improve that? Yeah, I think the, as far as the current accessibility goes, um, there's a real lack of consideration for uh, micromobility, that's uh, scooters or skateboards, certain areas where you can't even it's uh, illegal to skate in that area um, and that the cycling along George Street has to go down the, the centre of the tra- in the traffic with the car um, and that there is, you know, there's buses along George Street um, I think what the, the new design will kind of give and take a little bit in this space um, and that the bus line is going to be moved further away which is going to be you know, fine if you're able-bodied, but if you have accessibility issues or you're elderly, 
think that might present an extra challenge for people trying to get into George Street, you know, if you have those accessibility problems. But from a, a scooter or small wheel bicycle perspective, I think it, it, it will provide a bit of a safer space for people to be able to move through. Um, the, traditionally, you know, bikes would always go into car traffic, and now it looks like they're going into what would be called the activity zone uh, on the George Street design. And uh, having, having cyclists closer to pedestrians might be a bit of a, a shock for some people, but I think generally it, it's it's a lot safer. Um, but we'll, we'll see kind of how, how the actual cycling allocation really goes in the final design. Development will see George Street between Frederick Street and Moray Place become one way, only allowing traffic in a north to south direction. What effects do you expect this to have on the environment? Uh, I think it, it's going to be interesting to, to really see um, how, how this eventuates. I think what Dunedin really has a problem with the west to east and east to west traffic flow going from the one ways onto the hill suburbs. Um, so George Street generally only contributes to sort of that north uh, traffic flow, which is already kind of well accommodated by the one ways. So as far as, 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 far as that big picture thinking about traffic goes, uh, you would hope that there will be, you know, less traffic on George Street, but uh, the spaces for allowing people to cross that east-west will be slightly better at the one ways will be able to, you know, the um, one way south and one way north will be able to help kind of pick up the slack there a little bit. I think, you know, as far as the sort of traffic and the one way speeds go, it, uh, on on George Street itself, it being 10 kilometres, I think will be a bit of a, a shock to some people. I remember that um, last time 10 kilometres were trialled, I think it definitely made people uh, a bit frustrated. But I think that's sort of the, the kind of compromise you have to make in order to prioritise pedestrian safety and hopefully that the design is really reflective of that uh, pedestrian priority and sort of whilst cars are there, they're not the most important design feature. I think people kind of understand it a little bit better. But I think, you know, that's definitely going to be controversial, that 10-kilometre speed limit. We'll see how that plays out. I think otherwise, I think... Traffic should generally be actually all right. They put a lot of enabling work in to kind of support the the adjustments around that area. Finally, your organisation plays an important role in advocacy and consultation over projects like this one. How have you got involved in this project and others around the area? Um, so I think generally um, we, we get involved, I think, because we, we really put ourselves out there as far as getting into the uh, stakeholder environment. And I think that's come from spending a lot of years building uh, relationship building um, and also just generally being an active voice to council, always answering all their calls for consultation and providing sort of that stakeholder perspective. And I think for us it's really about trying to make sure that our urban form reflects uh, a, a need for ad addressing climate change and I think there, there are some really persistent voices within council which fo really favours like that business as usual style thinking um, and uh, sort of business priorities and I think for us it's trying to really shift the conversation to be thinking about climate change within these discussions, thinking about uh, sort of that future level uh, future thinking and, and trying to ensure that you know, young people and the sort of the next generation considering this design project. You know, this design's going to probably stay in place for another 20 years, and I think it's a real statement about how we're going to respond to climate change that 
cars and car parking are going to be a central part of uh, climate change response well into the 2040s, which is, you know, when we're supposed to be sort of heading towards net zero. So I think this is this is why we sort of show up to these things, is because otherwise there's, there's no other, like, really young voice in the room, and there's no other voice kind of really advocating for climate change. So we try and do our best to kind of address the needs of, you know, vulnerable people, address the needs of young people, address the needs of future generations, and hopefully that... Uh, council kind of reflects that in their in choices and I think the George Street design today does kind of reflect their, their shifting priorities towards thinking about more flexible options and a more sustainable future Cool, thanks for being on the show No worries, thank you for having me That was Finn Campbell from Gen Zero Dunedin talking to us about the George Street development Now we have Welcomer with Song Cicadas 3 
Te Oraka is a student-manned thrift initiative set up by Sustainability at Otago that helps reduce anxiety and guilt about climate change by making a difference in education and what we can do within our control. We are joined today by Jessica Triscott and Ray O'Brien from Sustainability at Otago to talk about what it is and how we can get involved. Tēnā koro. Kia ora. So what is Te Oraka all about? Te Oraka is a brand new space which we consider the good space and it's all about reducing waste to landfill and teaching students and celebrating uh, ways on how we can adapt to a circular economy. How did this initiative come about? It actually came about on a drive from uh, Dunedin to Wanaka for a sustainability conference um, and we checked out Waste Busters, realised that there's an absolute need for students to be supported through waste disposal rather than relying on the skips, especially at the end of the year. So Teodaka just offers an ongoing solution um, uh, to students, but also provides a space where we can also educate and build skills and values around reducing waste to landfill. So a point of difference for Teodaka is that it's staffed by students um, as part of that education process. Has this been important for getting buy-in and involvement from other students? We are really lucky that the Sustainability Office here at Otago actually employs five Tisukuras, which are we consider student leads here at the space. Um, so our five Tisukura actually have led that conversation. So buy-in hasn't been difficult. We've also had three open days so far, and students have been loving it. So as far as we've seen, student buy-in is absolutely thriving. One of the cool things about Te Araka is the bike grab. Um, what is it, and what is it intending to achieve? to achieve and how, is it, how successful has it been so far? Our bike grabs are definitely one of the most favourite projects, especially when they started two years ago. Um, the collab started with Malcam Trust to have a contract with DCC to get access to the bikes that end up in landfill. Um, so those bikes get repaired up by uh, Alex there at Malcam Trust um, and they typically go back to low socioeconomic families. We connected with Alex uh, highlighting the need for accessible and affordable um, options to transport. So uh, biking became one of the top priorities. Um, so we work with Alex. He brings bikes either from landfill or bikes that have been left across colleges or other parts of the campus. They get repaired by the student who purchases the bike, and then they can pay a small koha for that bike. I think it's really important as well to note that it's not just staff, uh, students that take up on it. Staff also get amongst it, which is really epic to see um, because sometimes staff are very much in need as well. Yeah, it is. Are there any other interesting sort of items available for sale at the moment? Nothing too interesting, but we do we definitely have a lot of clothing. Um, we also will be transforming this Teodaka store uh, to fill up with all the costumes that we accumulated. So that will support events like Hyde Street coming up. So students can get access to secondhand costumes rather than um, putting a lot of pressure on our environment by buying a lot of plastic junk from stores. And how can and how can people get involved? Um, by coming down on Open Day, we're open now from Tuesday and Thursday at eleven till one. Um, you can keep their eye out on our socials, which is Teodaka, um, on Instagram, where we promote workshops coming up. We've just uh, lined up our first reusable pad making workshop um, and bike grabs are coming up on the 27th of April which will be our very first one. There's heaps of bikes to come down, get repaired and grab for just a small quarter. Cool, thanks for talking to us today. No stress, thank you so much for having us. 
You are listening to Radio One Te Reo Irirangi Kotahi 91FM for the R1 News Show weekdays 11 to 12. For more information on our news shows, you can find us on Instagram at r1newsnz or on our website r1.co.nz. Today, we spoke to Chloe Schwarbrick about the Greens partnering with student unions for a people's inquiry into student well-being. We also spoke to a queer student representative, Abigail Young, about the Alabama anti-trans bills. We interviewed... Finn from Gen Zero Dunedin, and we just spoke with Jessica Trescott at Te Oraka, a new thrift initiative set up by Sustainability at Otago. Thanks so much, and keep it locked on the one.
words of Bonnie Harrison The news never dies So 
Thanks for listening to a Radio 1 91 FM podcast. There are heaps more at r1.co.nz.